Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 60. Is there in truth no beauty? Welcome to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. No, don't look upon me. I'm too hideous. You will surely go mad. Yeah, this is the show where we analyze Star Trek to find out the morals, messages, and meanings of the show. Hurt your we're... eyes! My thoughts may be sublime, but my form is terrifying. No doubt. What we do is we pick apart the uh, episode if and try only to... only our listeners could touch my mind and feel the beauty of my pure thoughts, they could look past the horror of my body. All right, we are doing an audio podcast. Oh. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. Yeah, you know, it's only episode 60. I understand it takes a little time. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. what we do is we, you know, like I say, figure out uh, each episode of Star Trek while well, we try to figure out each episode of Star Trek. We pull out the messages, morals, and meanings, and then try to decide uh, whether that episode stands the test of time. And Ken, you and I are both really handsome. <laughs> Despite your protestations to the contrary. It was all an act. Uh, this week's episode, Is There in Truth No Beauty? Presented with a question mark. No beauty. Um, you know, the, the closest literary uh, allusion to this would be uh, from the Keats poem, uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn, uh, published in 1819. Beauty is truth. Whoa, whoa, truth. whoa. 1819 or 1919? It's 1819. 1819? It's 1819. My goodness, he was forward-thinking, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the, the line is, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. And I have to tell you that ever since then, people have been arguing over what this means and to whom it is addressed in the poem. Uh, but it is a, a neoclassical construct from Greek philosophy that actually gets some discussion in this episode. Gets a little bit of discussion in this episode, but there are other ways and other places and other times that people can discuss too. Before we get you know too far into the show, mm-hmm. let's remind people how they can do that because uh, we'd love to hear from you. So there are a few ways to get in touch with us on Facebook, Skype, or Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod. Mission Log Pod again is the handle, or you can call us three two three five two two five six four one. You can email us Mission Log at Roddenberry dot com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And don't forget, in addition to Facebook, Skype, Twitter, all that, we have this lovely web page that we would love for you to check out. Just, you know, stuff's changing there all the time. Uh, missionlogpodcast.com is the place to do that. Missionlogpodcast.com. You'll find your discovered documents there. You'll find your T-shirts there. You'll find all kinds of fun stuff there. Uh, please browse your browser that way. Oh, Ken, Ken, you said the phrase that pays. You said discovered docs. I and, did. And, and then I can think of only one thing. I'm ready to do the trivia. Oh, please do. Would you please? Oh, won't you please? People have been waiting all week. I thought you'd never ask. Uh, this week in Discovered Documents, we have a memo from October 28th, 1968. Uh, it is, in fact, the Arbitron overnight ratings for the week that this show, Is There in Truth No Beauty, aired. So if you're one of those people who can uh, participate in the black art of reading and understanding ratings, you may find that very interesting. 
This episode is directed by Ralph Sineski, frequent Star Trek uh, collaborator, contributor, and director. Uh, he recalled that when he came back uh, early in the third season, the things were, in a word, tense um, when he was uh, when he finally made it to set. Um, now he had already worked with uh, David Frankum, that is Marvik, in this episode, and uh, he also championed the return of Diana Muldaur. Uh, when the original actress, Jessica Walter, was unavailable. Ken, does the name Jessica Walter ring any bells to you? It does not. Well, you know, audiences now uh, in the early 21st century may recognize her as Lucille One, i.e. Lucille Bluth on Arrested Development. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, very cool. All right. Yeah. Um, so, so that viewers would not confuse Dinah Muldar with the character of Anne Mulhall, they put a black wig on her. Uh, she, of course, was the character in Return to Tomorrow, though, honestly, I don't see how she could be mistaken. I, I mean, Dinah Muldar has a very distinct look, a very distinct voice. I think pretty much you see that and you go, hey, that's the same woman who is in Return to Tomorrow. <laughs> but um, where they got around the rule of uh, not having return guest stars uh, outside of a single role uh, by doing that, by asking her to wear the black wig. Well, um, they, I mean, they also did a better job of establishing right at the top, you know, that she was somebody very different. I mean, it's not like the, uh, Mark Leonard. Oh, well, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Because he had the same ears. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, they've, same changed, they've changed her. They've changed her outfit. They've changed her costume. They set up exactly well, except for the part that we don't know when she's coming in on the transporter exactly who we, who she is. But we've set up that we're not in the same story. Um, I, I would say they did much better with that uh, than right. they did with uh, Spock's dad slash that guy. Right. <laughs> yep. Um, now, one thing that uh, the director, uh, Ralph Sineski, did, did not approve of was the special effects for Kolos. Uh, in the script, all we see is just a bright blue light emanating from his carrying case, and we only see it reflected on the people and the environment around him. The script never called for a shot into the box with all the psychedelic lights and, and flashes, so he was not very happy that that was uh, put in there without his <laughs> You know what I found myself wondering? What's that? Sorry, you know what I found myself wondering? If that What's wasn't that? what uh, what Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta found. Uh, I thought exactly the Pulp same Fiction. thing. I thought exactly the same. <laughs> like if they weren't so happy because they had found maybe the one beautiful Medusan right. in the right. galaxy, which they're going to take to uh, they're gonna take to Marcellus Wallace later. It's worth fortune. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Are we happy? Well, I'm not crazy, so I guess we must be. <laughs> um. Now, I, I will tell you a couple of other people who were not too happy with some of the decisions on this show, and that would be Mr. Shatner and Nimoy. Now, let me paint a picture for you of uh, what Ralph Sineski found on the first day as he got to set. Uh, Shatner and Nimoy were due to film the scene in the, uh, the dinner table scene with um, uh, Dr. Miranda Jones and, of course, Marvick. And, uh, and it, it, they couldn't come to agreement. They were very unhappy because there was a new prop brought into the show, and that was the Idic, the, uh, the medallion that Spock wears that represents infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Um, Shatner and Nimoy uh, had confronted their producer, Fred Freiberger, uh, assuming that this was a ploy to sell products through Lincoln Enterprises. So uh, 
he was called, he couldn't solve it, he called Gene Roddenberry, he came to set. They tried to get everything worked out, but Sineski had planned ahead. He already had other scenes that he could film, so he filmed all the Jones and Marvick scenes that day, and then they put off the dinner scene until that could be rewritten to not make the uh, product placement, in this case, quite so obvious. Is that really how that, is that really how that, what that was? That is really truly what that was. That was something that Gene came up with. It was his design. And you'll notice that in that dinner scene, she mentions it. Yep. But they, you only see a glimpse of it. Yeah, well, except, except for at the end of the, uh. And at the end, it's like full on, full frontal. It's itic. bling. It's bling. Yeah. It is. I actually it's honestly bling. thought that like as soon as she, you know, teleported out that Kirk was going to be like, that is seriously not regulation. <laughs> right, right. I'm cool with the edic thing, but if Spock brings a bobblehead Kirk onto the Enterprise, we may have a problem. Prologue. We've got some very special guests aboard the Enterprise today. Meet Larry Marvick the man who helped design the Enterprise. Then there's Dr. Miranda Jones, telepathically gifted and once studied on Vulcan. Then there's the guy in the box, Kolos, the Medusan ambassador with brilliant thoughts but a hideous form that cannot be viewed by humans. Dr. Jones is his caretaker. Step right up, one of you is the next contestant on The Price is Right. Act 1. Spock and Miranda carry Kolos to his quarters, making sure that the hallways are clear of any humans who could even risk seeing the Medusan. Even one glimpse could render a human insane. On the way, Spock expresses his fascination with creating a mind link to the ambassador, and Dr. Jones kind of seems pleased that he can't, maybe even a little jealous that Spock would try. When Spock asks to exchange greetings with Kolos, Dr. Jones seems a little put off, but she lets him anyway open up with the box, and what do we have? A sparkling light show and shimmering sound effects, like Kolos is having his own rave inside that little box. Spock is wearing the protective visor, and all seems to go well. Dr. Jones is wearing the visor, too. She's human, but her Vulcan training was all about mental discipline, so she can handle that level of seeing Kolos. She also thinks Spock is jealous and trying to take her place. He assures her he is not. Dr. Jones explains a bit more of her abilities at dinner. The goal is to establish a mind link with the Medusans in the hope that their amazing navigation skills can be put to use on starships. Spock is wearing an itic at dinner, and Dr. Jones takes offense. She thinks it's a swipe at her because Vulcans are capable beyond her at being able to perform a mind link with other species. He assures her that he is, in fact, honoring her abilities. During all the toasting and slightly uncomfortable dinner chatter, Dr. Jones gets a psychic impression that someone wants to murder the Medusan ambassador. It has taken something out of her, but the vision passes, and she heads back to her room. Larry Marvick leaves dinner as well, and he heads right to Dr. Jones's room and, well, expresses his intense love for her. She rejects him, though. She's more interested in work. Then it dawns on her, he's the one who wants to murder Kolos. He leaves and heads right into Kolos's room with a phaser. The box opens, and before he can get off a shot, Marvik is stricken by Kolos's bizarre appearance. Act 2. Marvik runs off down a corridor toward engineering. Dr. Jones realizes what's happened, and Kirk alerts security. Down in engineering, what was a social visit is turned into fisticuffs after Marvik started messing with the controls. 
the ship is careening at warp nine and higher in no particular direction. Security rushes to engineering to find an insane Marvik just as the Enterprise crashes through the galactic barrier. Hey, maybe we should stop and pay our respects to Gary Mitchell and Dr. Daner. Marvik is subdued just a little bit. He freaks out again when Dr. Jones tries to calm him. Screaming that he loves her, he collapses to the floor and dies. Act 3. Floating out in the middle of nowhere and no trail of breadcrumbs to follow home, the Enterprise is stuck thanks to Marvik's psychotic break. Kirk realizes that Kolos might be their ticket out of wherever they are. Perhaps Spock can risk a mind meld with Kolos and get help in piloting the Enterprise. But this is something that will not go over well with Dr. Jones. Kirk could confine her to quarters, but he instead thinks really hard about what special skill he could use to get her distracted and get them out of this jam. Hmm, now now help me out. What could Kirk do to distract a woman? Hmm, all right. Time for a trip to the Arboretum, where he'll whisper sweet nothings in her ear and show her a rose. Oops, too bad about that thorn. Dr. Jones is a tough nut to crack, though. She's much more in line with the Vulcan philosophy that violent and negative emotions should be purged because they get in the way of our growth. She hates pity, worst of all. Kirk is all, hey, yeah, but what about love? Spock is headed to Kolos, and Dr. Jones interrupts Kirk's seduction because she can feel what's happening. She rushes to help, and Spock stops her at the door. This needs to be done. She protests that she can be the psychic link with Kolos. All they need to do is teach her how to pilot the ship. McCoy reveals what he suspected early on. She is blind, and she has been hiding the fact with a complex sensor array embedded in her clothing. She simply can't pilot the Enterprise without vision. If she can't take the truth from Kirk, then perhaps Kolos can persuade her. Dr. Jones enters his quarters while McCoy explains to Kirk that he respected her privacy enough to not reveal her secret. A shriek is heard behind the door to Colos's room, and in a moment, Dr. Jones emerges to comply with Kirk's plan. Colos is brought to the bridge and placed behind a barrier wall. Spock begins the process of mind meld, and he emerges just about as happy as he was back on Omicron SETI 3. Well, it's not entirely Spock. Half of his mind is that of Colos, but that Colos is one charming dude. He would be a great guest at a cocktail party if only his natural form wouldn't make all the other guests turn into murderous lunatics. After a little meeting and greeting, it's time to get to work. Kolos Spock mans the helm and calls out the orders. The Enterprise engines hum and the big ship turns back in the right direction. In a moment, there are stars and we're back in the Milky Way. The whole ordeal was a success and Kolos enjoyed his time in a corporeal body. It's time to get back in the box, though. And Kolos Spock forgot to put on the visor. Act 4. Kolos is back in his crate, and Spock is... Well, he is seemingly not well. He's seeing things through a fisheye lens, and he attacks everyone on the bridge. Once he is subdued with a phaser shot, he's carried off to sickbay. Dr. Jones is in the room with him, but Kirk is worried because of her difficult relationship with Spock. Kirk confronts Dr. Jones. She isn't wearing her sensor wrap, which means she truly is blind. She's by Spock's bedside, but she isn't really doing much to help. Kirk keeps encouraging her to use her telepathic powers to help him, and he even accuses her of forcing Spock to forget the visor, just one more way to get her competition out of the way. 
He demands that she see the ugliness of her own petty jealousy for Spock, which is preventing her from helping him. She relents, and after a few quick montage cuts and more weird fisheye lens effects, the telepathic bond she establishes with Spock helps to unscramble his brain. He's back to himself, but a little woozy. There's a nice upshot, though. Dr. Jones has now picked up some of Spock's mind-meld ability with Kolos. See? There's a happy ending after all. Soon enough, a Medusan ship arrives to collect the ambassador. Kirk and Spock are there to see Dr. Jones and Kolos beamed over. Kirk presents Dr. Jones with a rose, and she thanks him for helping her to see her shortcomings. Spock is there wearing a funky medallion way before Sammy Davis or the Bee Gees made it cool. She thanks him for the lesson in Idic that the glory of creation is in its infinite diversity. The end. You know, after what you said in the beginning about Idic, it actually, it it never made sense to me that the Vulcans were all Idic-y. Oh, really? Yeah, totally. Huh. Because they're all... a little too, too emotional, too, too spiritual, touchy-feely, or, or what? No, the Vulcans tend to be a bit standoffish. We've talked about that before. There was that ship of 400 Vulcans that got destroyed. There's that whole... Yeah. You know, everybody's sort of embarrassed that Spock decided to go to Starfleet rather than, you know, stay on Vulcan and do Vulcan-y things. Right. So, right. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me. And that's, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still sort of caught on that revelation from earlier. You know, mm. I guess I could read the notes you send. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> no. I wouldn't be so distracted when you oh, actually don't, don't mess up the show. reference no. the notes you send. Um, you talk about the weird fisheye stuff. I love mm. the mad cam in this episode. Mm-hmm. I'm into that entirely. And it makes, it, you know, it, it's good because, it, I mean, how are you going to show insane? Otherwise, he's just an angry guy running around. But if you can see how weird things look to him, yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of that. Plus, yeah, it's really cool. Anything that gets the camera off a tripod, I'm kind of a fan of too. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Hey, uh, some transporter stuff going on here. Um, did you think that Kirk was in the transporter room when they beamed out? Uh, I, you know, honestly, I was too distracted by the, uh, by the bling. <laughs> you, were, you, you were mesmerized by Spock's uh, there's, cool medallion. Well, there's stuff that I don't understand about the whole, or don't understand about the whole transporter thing. Like, I, mm-hmm. I assume that Spock put on the visor because he thought what was going to beam in was mm-hmm. the hideousness that was the Medusan ambassador, right? Because well, then see, Dr. Jones it. gets there and he's like, yeah. uh, hello, ambassador, <laughs> as, as if she's the ambassador and the ambassador is the ambassador's luggage, right? Right. So, right. I, so I, I don't understand. I didn't understand. Like, so once we know that that's not the case, he's still putting on the visor to, you know, send them off. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of strange. I, I, for some reason, I thought that as they beamed out or as they beamed in, yeah. it, it's like an inside-out process. So mm. you, you may catch a glimpse of the Medusan as they are forming on the transporter pad. And uh, I, I mentioned that thing about Kirk being in the room because there's actually a cut scene, uh, j- just a quick line uh, where Kirk tells him peace, and then he leaves. Mm-hmm. So he's not actually in the transporter room when they get beamed out. We just don't see that in the cut. Um, And in the beginning, when Spock is there wearing the visor, I thought, okay, maybe this is just a precautionary thing unless a little bit of, a little bit of Colos leaks out of the box (laughs) on materialization. Is that how that happens? A little bit of Colos like leaks out? Well, it's a tough thing to to pull off. If you're a Medusa and and you have to be both formless and hideous. Yeah. That's, how are you going to be hideous without a form? Well, apparently they can do it. Yeah, I love I love your whole thing though in your description when you say it's like his own private rave in there. I want oh, he's having a great time. I now want to recut, you know, 
this episode. <laughs> so that every time anybody opens up, you know, the lunchbox that has the ambassador in it, you just right. hear like 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 the opening strains of Gangnam Style or something. Well, right. not, which is not really rave music, but you know, just, I, w- I want to hear massive beat. Yeah, and, it's you know, like a, like a dubstep party in there. That that reference won't be dated. <laughs> that would, yeah. Raves have survived though, so maybe people will know. They have. Yeah, somebody's got to tell the kids. Right. <laughs> hey, um, what, what would the Medusans have to do with a starship? You know, I was wondering about that too. Well, I'm glad you wondered that. Yeah. Because the original special effects, now I wrote my story description based upon the Blu ray, the remastered, because that's what most people are watching now. I realize that there are people who are diehard fans of the original effects, and then there are people who are either diehard fans of the remasters, or that's just what they have. Yeah. The original effect shot was the Medusan homeworld. Honestly, that doesn't really change your question, though, because, I mean, the whole thing is still about designing ships that the Medusans can fly, right? Because the Medusans are, are yeah. like, guild navigators from Dune. Right. They're actually very much like guild navigators from Dune. They can get from point A to point B without any idea, you know, of what's in between them. Or any clear mm-hmm. idea of what's in between them, and nobody's ever seen them physically, which is what, which is how it was in Dune, until David Lynch ruined Dune. Um, <laughs> if you're a fan yeah. of the novel, otherwise, if you're not a fan of the novel, then you you probably had a great time at the movie. I don't know, but they remind me a lot of each, of each other in that respect. But yeah, what are they going to do? So okay, so the Vulcans can handle seeing the Medusans. To humans, they are repulsive. How would they be to Andorians or Andorans? Oh, or how would they oh. be to Ferengi? Or how would they be to Kardashians? Some or Kardashians, excuse me, somewhere down the road, <laughs> the Kardashians would hate them. But yes. yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's sort of an odd. Like, is this just like the way that we grew up? And maybe this actually belongs in the next segment. But is it like the things that we think of as beautiful, yeah. and and so we're so driven mad by how they look. But it'd be cool if you showed them a um, well, like 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 what a horda just be like, hey. <laughs> You know, <laughs> uh, you're here too, huh? <laughs> All right. Hey, did Spock do that thing with your brain? Isn't that awesome? That is so awesome, and I, it, it really solved my loneliness issue. I would call our point of view uh, parochial. Yeah, you might, you might indeed, you might yeah. indeed, or short-sighted, or you know, whatever. I just so I, I so I found myself wondering that. So okay, so they get spaceships that they can fly around now, right? Yeah. Do they seal themselves up like the guild navigators do? Or are they basically going to become like the uh, you know like the like the ship captains for everybody across the galaxy, like the people who aren't actually in any sort of interstellar anything, but still need to get from one planet to another? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not in Starfleet, and Starfleet's busy. They're either you know exploring or blowing things up. So right. we a lot of plates. can't yeah. just drive you around all over the place. But why don't you call uh, the Medusans? No, don't look at them. Don't don't video call them for crying out loud. <laughs> just you know, call them right. because and, and then do they or or if they're just gonna like yeah, you know, this exploring thing sounds good. We're gonna explore too. I just hope we don't come across any planets with humans on them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Or, or just we're sensitive like humans. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. That, that, that might be it. They have to announce themselves first. Like, okay, we're coming. Yeah. But look away. Yeah. There are a couple of other things uh, it, that I noticed in the show. Seriously, yep. Spock, take your time getting to the Medusan ambassador's uh, chambers. Oh, he it's does. Like, yeah, because Kirk's like, okay, so I'm going to get her out of there. I'm going to distract her. And Spock's like, 
He's like, you know, picking stuff up off the carpet as he's going. He's strolling. I mean, seriously, he's practically walking backwards away from the movie. And then they get like halfway through the action with, you know, um, Shatner and Moldauer. And, and you cut back to Spock who you figure, well, he must have made his mind meld by now. Now he's about halfway to the cabin. He's, yeah. he's just like, hey, just taking his time. He would be like the worst for like surprise parties. And it's a very big ship. And uh, and they had to keep the Medusan far away from the rest of the quarters. It's that you know I actually wondered about that too. Like, okay, everybody, get out of all of the halls, right? Because <laughs> right. we know how he's going to go. But seriously, just every, get out of the halls. Just all of them. Again, why he might just, leave. Why don't they just hand out blindfolds to everybody before he got there? there I do. Go. I got one other one other thing for uh, for for our man Chekhov. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Mr. Chekhov, what's our position? Oh, our position is so close to the point where we entered the void, the difference isn't even worth mentioning. Yeah, but, you know, I'm I'm just going to, you know, say this. I'm your superior officer. <laughs> so even if you don't think it's worth mentioning, uh, the fact that I'm asking mm-hmm. uh, makes it worth mentioning. So yep. do me a favor. Get, get with the mentioning. <laughs> where are we is my question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of where they are, you know, uh, it, we get to experience the galactic barrier again. Yeah, always it's fun. A weird because okay, nobody goes crazy. Nobody, nobody's eyes roll into the back of their head and turn silver. Nobody gains psychic powers again. Right. Um, but then you end up in this space that's just sort of like a bunch of black, blue, green clouds and stuff. Um, yeah. Which seems. A, a strange choice and well, probably scientifically inaccurate choice. I can only assume that they're just out of the space-time continuum. This is something completely wrong. Otherwise, just look in the rearview mirror, yeah, and then they're going to be back. You would think so, wouldn't you? You would think. Yeah. They're also, we, I think we learned the secret to mm. uh, crossing the galactic barrier this time. Just go real fast. Yeah, go I, really real fast. <laughs> granted, yeah. you may not be able to get back, but wasn't the problem... Uh, with the one with uh, Dr. Daner, uh, the fact that they're like, okay, so everybody, you know, uh, hold your breath and hold on tight because we're going to go through the galactic barrier uh, ahead just a tiny little bit fast, right? right? And, and, and hold hands with Gary Mitchell. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. then and then the ship nearly breaks apart, but then some lunatic goes where he doesn't even have a steering wheel, <laughs> but just like, you know, punches it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely no problem at all, except for the fact uh, where they're, you know, lost. Hey, what was the deal with that scream in Act 3? So Miranda Jones goes into Colos's quarters, and she's like, all right, you've convinced me. I'll talk to him. She goes in, and it's this blood-curdling scream. First of all, mm-hmm. she can't see him. She's blind. Right. We know that. So is that her way of dealing with disappointment that she's not going to get her way? No. You know what? Okay, I'm guessing on this. And okay. probably somebody has a copy of the script. Heck, you may even have a copy of the script as far as I know. Uh, mm. My guess on this is Diana Muldaur is not the over-actor that Shatner is. No. Right? So she goes in, fairly subdued. Mm-hmm. She has delivered this very bad news. She comes out fairly subdued. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no way for us to know what happened in that room. Yeah. If they don't give us some sort of audio cue. But the problem is you can't have her like yelling at him and you can't have her. I mean, you can't have them hearing it because then that wrecks continuity for the entire ship. So instead right. we will. How, how do we express her disappointment without having to go back and refilm like, you know, her crying or anything like that? 
Yeah, just throwing a blood curdling scream. <laughs> now, and, I, uh, and yeah, that, that's what it felt like to me. They needed yeah. something. Yeah. And they needed something audible, but it just, <laughs> I, I really wonder, I thought, oh my God, what is he doing to her? See, that's you what know? I thought too. Yeah. I yeah. thought one of them was going to be dead when that scene was over right, and I wasn't right. sure which one. I got to say. And we'll just be stuck here forever. <laughs> I, I will say too, ever the Southern gentleman, uh, Bones, mm-hmm. at the very end of it, you know, well, I'm, I'm truly sorry to see you leave. Sure, you've been 10 pounds of crazy in a five-pound bag. And, you know, people have died. And heck, we all nearly died. But seriously, I am so, I am so sorry to see you go. I have a theory. Diana Muldaur was actually a hyper-intelligent, long-lived alien who kept looking for a way to stay on the Enterprise. Eventually she settled on a cantankerous doctor persona. That got her a room on the Enterprise. 70 years later. For a few months. Ken, as we often do, we'll, we'll kind of point out the uh, the female dynamic in an episode. I'm, I'm stopping short of using the S word here. Okay. <laughs> okay? Because I, I think it's more interesting than that. Um, the, than just about the roles of women at the time that this episode is written. There's a whole lot of Miranda Jones being the, the voice of, I'm a strong, independent woman. I can do whatever I damn well please. Mm-hmm. Coming up against seemingly everybody else on the ship saying, hey, you're a woman. Why don't you spend your time doing womanly things instead? Yeah. And, and she holds her ground. And I think that's why this makes her one of the better female characters that we've seen so far. Um, it, you know, it's strange that Kirk just sort of assumes that some man would have talked her out of her career by now. You know? Well, do you, I, think, do you think he was actually saying that some man would have done that or was he flirting? And don't misunderstand. I mean, he was mm-hmm. saying that. I mean, it, it's yeah. weird, actually, how liberal all of the men on mm-hmm. the Enterprise, with the exception of Spock, of course, how liberal all the men on the Enterprise feel in saying, no, you're far too pretty to do things that don't involve pretty things. <laughs> right, right, right. It's a, yes to, to answer your first question. I, I think that Kirk was flirting. Yeah, I think, I think he also meant what he said, but I think this is sort of a limitation of how Kirk deals with women. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he sort of got blinders on when when a beautiful woman shows up, and that that's how he will be able to relate to her. Because again, hey, get her in the arboretum for five minutes, and then it's all roses and rainbows yeah you, know? you, you really do kind of have to use the s word here except i mean the, the men on this the men are being sexist they are but well, here's the thing but she yeah. does hold her own she does yeah she does. She, she's flawed in different ways but none of it has to do with being a woman well and, and that was my other note there i mean everybody calling her out is, is behaving in a way that is wrong and selfish and pig-headed and yes sexist but but they're right about one thing she lacks compassion and she has totally hardened herself through work. It seems like she could use a doctor to maybe help her relax a little bit. You know, I, I mean, there's something that she has driven out of her life to the exclusion of being able to have human emotions anymore. Uh, it works for some Vulcans, but I don't think it necessarily works for humans, even if you are a super gifted human the way that she is. Oh, see, that still feels sexist to me. Honestly, really? well, yeah, I mean, because what guy does anybody say that about? I mean, this goes back to the whole thing again about he's tough as nails or, you know, well, he's tough, but he's fair. And, you know, no, no, but I think you can say that about a man or a woman. Any anybody who 
locks themselves down to work and only work to the exclusion of any other experience in their life, which is the impression that we get about her character. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's something psychologically flawed about that. You, you could argue to what degree. Yeah, but, well, I mean, I, you know. I don't disagree with you. I just don't think it's I don't think people call uh, men out for it as much as they do women. Uh, uh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's Pretty what much. I'm saying. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not saying that that observation is not true, but we don't. I mean, we expect women to be compassionate. And so if we see a woman who's just driven, then we'll, we will say, oh, wow, yeah, it's terrible that she's that way because people shouldn't be this way. But if we see a guy who's doing that, we're like, well, he's just an all-business guy. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, sure. we're kind of – so I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you <laughs> <laughs> with, with an asterisk. So yeah, that's what yeah, I would say. We, we do a lot of that. We have a lot of asterisks we on do. our show. Crazy yeah. number, yeah. It's interesting that, you know, we have that Greek idea that is explored. What what is good must also be beautiful. And then the opposite, what is ugly must be wrong, must be bad. And I I do have to hand it to them here that in addition to having a strong female character, in addition to exploring the nuance of that, at least the show is trying to see beyond that precept. I, I think that idea had kind of fallen out of favor anyway. And Kirk admits that it's a prejudice. Now, he basically says he can't get over it, <laughs> that it's a hard prejudice to get over. Right. But, but he admits that it is a human failing. Yeah. That's the last of our prejudices. Well, we yeah. still got it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we've got some others but it's that okay. aren't quite as well pronounced, but we've got some others too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This goes back to what we were sort of talking about a little bit in the last segment of the, um, you know, the idea that the thing is hideous beyond sanity rather than you know, just some form of other mental effect. Leading mm-hmm. to the mental defect. I mean, that, that that whole thing is kind of weird. I love like her saying, "Ugly, what is ugly? Who is to say whether uh, Kolos is too ugly to bear or too beautiful to bear?" Yeah, that's kind of neat. I mean, the whole Medusan idea is both fascinating and dumb, <laughs> right? I mean, yes. it really, it yes. really kind of is because I think about like like doctors see stuff every day that I know would turn my stomach. It would make me throw up, and it would be one of the mm-hmm. things that would make me a lousy doctor. Except, I assume that at some point they got over that, right? I'm not mm-hmm. saying every doctor gets to med school and he's like, oh, I'm going to be sick, I'm going to be sick, and after three years he's finally not going to be sick. Right. But I mean, there, there's the idea that there's one that there's one idea of beauty or one idea of ugly, especially an idea of ugly that could drive everybody mental. Right. Everybody right. who sees it, or at least everybody who was raised on Earth or by Earthlings, because again, we do the whole, like, Vulcans can take it. Yeah, yeah. Is that just because of their strong mental capacity, or is it because they grew up with different ideas of of what's beautiful and what's ugly, or or is it because they grew up with sort of like almost outside of that idea of like, well, letting the idea of beauty you know govern what they do? Because we do that mm-hmm. here on mm-hmm. this planet. That, that brought me to the very difficult question of where did the Medusans get their name? <laughs> okay. Because he, here's the thing. If we go back to the idea that Medusans just sort of like show up at various planets, like do they know that they have this problem or has this been a lot of trial and error? They keep showing up at planets. People are going crazy. And finally one Medusan says to the others, look, we've got to just stop showing up because we keep driving people insane. I don't know what it is, but we got to get a warning out there. So then when it comes to the Federation, do they contact the Federation and, and just give them the rundown and say, okay, look, we're really smart, but you can't look at us or else you'll go insane. And then somebody very wise of the Federation said, hey, in English, we'll just call you 
something that is the most hideously grotesque creature from Earth mythology that turns men to stone. And then the Medusan ambassador was like, great, let's go with that. <laughs> um, or, or, or did the Medusans, did they already have a name that kind of sounded like that? And then they were just lucky <laughs> that, it, that it worked, you know. Um, I would like to see the negotiations that got the Medusans named Medusans. Well, no, it, it's not really accurate, is it? Because we don't turn people to stone. No, just drive them insane. Then we're actually creating a yeah. renewable resource, right? Yeah, right. I mean, yes. We might, yeah. actually, might actually be doing the planet some good. And by the planet, I, of course, mean the galaxy. Yeah, right. Yeah. If only I, they turned people into dilithium. You know, you know quick aside, what, what was the plan for Larry, by the way? So, yeah. so we find out. So the reveal is, okay, well, Miranda's blind, so she can go live with the Medusans, and it's no skin off her nose because she can't mm-hmm. see any of them anyway, so she's not going to go mad, right? Mm-hmm. They were also taking Larry to that planet, weren't they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah he, he was going to work on their ships. Right. By himself forever By and himself. ever? Yeah, they were just going to text him every time they needed something. Make a very big case for Larry. Well, that's the thing. If you're <laughs> a human on the Medusan planet, do you get your own crate? <laughs> and and right. what do they carry you with and how? Right. And because come to think of it, going back to your question earlier, the question is not... What are they doing with the spaceship? But how do they build it? Yes. <laughs> they got no hands. They got no hands. Uh, this whole thing is just getting more and more insane. I, can, we, can we do something good about this episode? Yeah. Something fantastic it, about this episode? Yes. When, what was the last episode of the original series that we watched that had a truly like breathtaking bit of technology? Mm. Oh, I, I don't know. The Agonizer? No, you see, that's a funny idea, but no, okay, maybe Spock's brain, when you have the idea that, okay, well, you know, this brain hooked up to these electrodes could actually run this whole thing, but the problem is Spock's brain is such a goofy episode that it doesn't really work. Right. Miranda's sensor-laden dress is awesome. Uh, Miranda's sensor-laden dress is hard science fiction in a show that almost seems to have given up on the science part of science fiction in season three. I mean, to to see that bit of technology walking around... And to see that be like a linchpin of the show was absolutely amazing to me. And I got to figure that has to have inspired some 10 or 15 year old geek at the time who ended up going on to do absolutely amazing things. Because with the exception of not knowing what the interface is with her, mm-hmm. and this, this, is, this is starting to get like hard science fiction talk. But I mean, I was so jazzed by the fact that there was actually a science fiction thing in this science fiction show. Like, okay, so is it like a, is it like a is it bluetooth i mean is she receiving signals that are somehow going into her brain because if that's the case when she doesn't have the dress on she still should have known that it was kirk because it's still reading it's just reading now from over in the corner not where she's standing i don't know how that whole thing works but i absolutely love the fact that it's like she's blind but the technology is so cool yeah and so good that she's going to advance past it I mean, yeah. she's she's going to walk around and people aren't even going to know that she's blind. That's how good the technology is going to be. That was super cool. That like it turned me on. Now, yeah. I'm wondering why Jordy had to wear a visor 70 years later. <laughs> but OK. Well, yeah, that's you know, that's out of the timeline. And we, we will have forgotten about this dress that we will see one time. Absolutely. I, now, I will also say, how is it that the Medusans uh, either haven't just started, you know, poking people's eyes out? <laughs> when they get places so they could have, you know, some worker bees to do some stuff for them. No, it'll be good. No, we'll feed you. We'll take care of you. We're really deep thinkers. So you're going to have tremendous conversation. I'm just going to need your eyes. Right. Either that, that, or- that, 
that, that, that's kind of a tough choice. Hey, yeah. we'll, we'll have great conversations or you can still keep your eyesight, but you can't have both. Well, it also seems like a perfect, uh, I mean, it seems like something you know, sort of like uh, the sort of like the whole Dax thing. Um, some sort of symbiotic something or other, it seems like, would have grown up with uh, with a blind group of people who can actually, you know, move things. It's it's interesting that she can't pilot the Enterprise because she's blind. Mm-hmm. But when she has the dress on, she can see everything in detail. Wow. You know, I, I mean, I mean she, she can tell how far the door is from Kirk. She knows who she's talking to. <laughs> so she's seeing something. And it, it gets you back to this technological question that you were raising. What is the interface and what does she see? I'm putting that in quotes. Well, mentally. is this thing helping her brain interpret an area? So she wouldn't be able to read a technical manual. She said she can remember anything instantly. Right. Um, so, well, I, I guess what I would say is I'm assuming, I mean, based on their size, that those are short-range scanners. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of a dress made of long-range scanners, but I'm guessing <laughs> that looks a bit like the dish that's on the front of the Enterprise. <laughs> so, that would be a tough dress, I would think. Um, well, but, you know, all she needs to do is sit at the helm and, you know see the buttons in front of her and what the readouts say oh, well I, I, no we're, we're getting awfully we're getting awfully stuck on on the the technology part of this but i mean what i'll say is i'm assuming it's like some sort of sonar thing she's able yeah. to tell distant she's able to tell exactly who is sitting exactly where she's even able to tell that the idic on spock's shirt is an idic right as opposed to just you know a thing so i mean she's obviously reading surfaces right yeah so, yeah. I mean, let's say that what she's got on the console is the equivalent of an iPhone. Well, she's going to know the whole time that there's an iPhone there or an iPad or just a flat screen. You know, they're they're pushing flat screens maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, yeah, her sensors are still going to read that the screen is still there, but it's not going to tell her what's on the screen. Now, we yes. do know that the computer can talk. Yep. So maybe it could just say, you know, by the way, it says, you know, 15.18. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, she she does very well for herself just with the dress and with her mental powers. I say that her problem is that she's bad at cooperation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, and I'm being a little flippant about that. I admit. Yeah, I, little. She, well, she's she overcompensates for uh, a, a seeming disability with this hyper ambition. Mm-hmm. And and for her, the truth, if we get back to the title of the episode, the truth for Dr. Jones is about her shortcoming. She won't face it, and she tries to persist in, in this delusion that she is stronger and better than others. You know, she this sort of air of superiority that she has over everybody in her her battle with Spock over his abilities versus her abilities. Um, and there may not be any beauty for her in facing her problems. Uh, but she would be much more productive if she could. Um, finally, she comes to a place after being, after having this shoved in her face by Kirk, that, uh, that she's a little more at rest by the time it's uh, time to say goodbye. Um, the other ugly truth in here, obviously, is her jealousy for Spock, uh, that she would never let, uh, or the fact that she would rather let a rival die. I mean, that's the implication of that last scene in sickbay is that without Kirk, she just would have stood there and let him die. Hmm. That's pretty heavy. Yeah. There, well, it is. I didn't really get that impression though. And maybe this goes again to the acting part that we were talking about. Maybe she's playing it too understated. I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, when, when like 
she'll say something, but it really feels like it's coming out of left field. I mean, Spock's not doing anything to thwart her, it doesn't seem to me. I mean, yes, he does have to make the mind link. There's something that's stopping her from making that mind link with Kolos, though. Although, when Kolos is in Spock's body, he says to her... I mean, she she's basically already got the end at that point. He says, your next world will be ours, or our next world will be together, or whatever it is. I mean, basically, they're, she she got the job. Yeah. And yeah. so, I, I didn't get the sense that she was just going to let Spock die until Kirk comes in. But maybe... I mean, was that like a fear thing or something? Or do you really think that she was that cold and was just going to let him die? Because when she said, all right, you know, it's so it's to life or death, maybe for both of us. I, I didn't get the sense that she was intentionally going to let him die. I got the sense that she wasn't, you know, she wasn't going all in. Well, remember, he even Kirk even accused her of making Spock forget to put the visor back on. Yeah. So he's saying you sabotage this. And here she is continuing with that. Because what's the alternative? Wait a minute. So, he didn't say you did. He said, did you? Mm-hmm. I mean, see, I kind of got the that, sense. That, that, that's I, as good as an accusation. Well, no, I'm not sure, though. You see, I got the sense that he was just trying to get her to do something. I don't know that any of the ac- accusations that he made in there were actual accusations of you're trying to do this, you're trying to do that. It felt more like he was just trying to goad her. It's like the whole thing with um, with um, oh the Gorgon last week. Mm-hmm. You know, like. He's a coward. He's a jerk. You know, and so then they're able to call him out. They're able to draw him out. And they're able to draw the kids out from that just by, you know, poking at him, right? And I cannot believe that I'm referencing that show in I, any I kind of good to way. It, yeah. I was going to tell you to say as you do. Or- but that, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the feeling that I get off what he was doing with Miranda, though. Not that he was actually accusing her of doing those things, but that he was just, you know, Almost showing her – well, like it's like he said. I'm going to show you with words the, the, the horror and ugliness and whatever you know that Spock saw that you can't. I mean I really just got the sense that he was just trying to goad her into doing something. Now, I, I, but until, until he did that, she seemed poised to do nothing except okay. stand there. I guess yeah. the question though is why was she standing there? And, and probably you can go ahead and decide for yourself, and I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. But sure, yeah, I mean yeah. my, my feeling was that she felt like it was too big and she didn't know what to do. Mm. And you're, it sounds like you're saying your feeling is that she was trying to get Spock out of the way. I, I think there might have been a little malice there. So <laughs> I think she was still hardened. The only problem that I have with that, though, is how is Kolos then going to go ahead and give her the job? Right. Right? I yeah, mean, that's yeah. what, I mean, it feels to me like it was – it feels to me like the only thing that was stopping her from making the mental link with Kolos the whole time was her. If it was disbelief in her ability to do it, or if it was her jealousy of other people, I mean, maybe that's the kind of thing that would actually, you know, keep her from being able to make that link. I can't imagine Kolos is going to be like, well, you know, the way you almost killed the Vulcan was kind of uncool. (laughs) But since at the very last second you didn't, I'm going to go ahead and make a, like, you know, a a seriously intimate mental link with you. We're good now. Because who hasn't almost killed somebody? Am I right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Non-corporeal, scary-looking people. Gorgon, you know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. Sorry. That's two references to last week. There was another thing that kept happening that I didn't understand about about Miranda specifically. What's up? I know I joked about, you know, 10 pounds of crazy in a 5-pound bag, but there's a <laughs> lot of madness around her. Now, mm-hmm. Diana Muldaur was pretty, mm-hmm. okay? And Miranda Jones is pretty, but every man on the Enterprise going loopy over her. Oh, yeah. And Larry's particular brand of insanity. Which, He's got it bad. He yeah. should, he, they actually should jar it. Larry's brand insanity. And, there, and there's no shortage of beautiful women on the Enterprise already. Well, there didn't used to be. 
It, oh, yeah. It's like one of those things, though. Like when you have somebody who's supposed to be pretty on the Enterprise, suddenly there aren't nearly as many so you people. Of, you know, get rid of everybody else. Like right. when Mud's women came, there were seriously no female crew members. Remember that? Right. Uh, right. Yeah, that was so long ago. Anyway, um, Larry. So Larry is like obsessed with her, right? And then he yep. goes loopy from looking at the Medusa, and, and then he's convinced that uh, they're here, and you brought it on the ship, and oh, it's going to kill me. And then he drops dead. Mm-hmm. Right. So did he just convince himself that he was going to die or is there something else weird going on with Miranda that is never addressed? Because everybody is in her thrall except for Spock, which, of course, you would expect him to not be. You know, it, it's like a it's like a Hitchcock blonde, Ken. She's got that icy, cold demeanor that just just makes her a tough nut to crack. And and all those guys, they they, they want that chance. That's that's how you inspire a, a Kirk speech about a woman doing womanly things instead of just studying and working hard. As we approach the end of the episode, one wanders in a wandering way. Is there in truth, truth or beauty? In is there in truth no beauty? time now to do that thing we do at the end of the show which is of course end the show but before we do that part we try to figure out whether the messages morals and meanings of uh of a particular episode are evident and whether they stand the test of time um does the episode hold up i gotta say john i feel like this episode can't help but hold up just compared to what we watched last week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and and not just making fun of that episode, I realized yeah. that this episode really, I mean, could do nothing but succeed in my mind because the whole time I was watching it, I was like, well, this is not nearly as bad as where we were. So, like, if, if they had opened the season with And the Children Shall Lead and then it was Spock's Brain. <laughs> right. Oh, Spock's Brain would yes. get the Emmy. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank that, you. Yeah. Yeah, but who wants to start off on a foot that week? Seriously. I wonder, though, like going back, are you able to watch it independent of that? Because I seriously, honestly, couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) If you just showed Um, somebody this episode just out of the blue, it's like, oh, you want to watch something that you've never seen anything of before? Okay, well, this is not this is not indicative of everything this show could be. But here, why don't you make your first episode of Star Trek? Is there in truth no beauty? Does does Mm -hmm. does the episode not represent Star Trek entirely at that point? But does it hold up? Well, no, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, if you're using that test of is this an episode that you show to somebody who's not familiar with Star Trek, I would have to qualify that and I have to say, well, if that person is a literary science fiction fan, if they if they read a lot of the great science fiction greats or if they've watched some of the other smarter sci-fi movies, you know, we, we've talked about uh, Forbidden Planet on this show, I think that audience would really find some appeal in this episode. You mentioned before you've got a hard sci-fi idea like her dress. Okay, so that's kind of a cool piece of technology that plays a pivotal role for her character and for where we go with this episode. Um, I I love the idea of Kolos, even though we struggled with it and we kind of made fun of it (laughs) for a minute there. But the idea of a truly alien entity that challenges us and us being, you know, in the place of the Enterprise crew or, or their, uh, the, the humans in the show being surrogates for us with this whole dichotomy of the appearance versus intellect. These are great ideas. And I still love the, um, 
I love what we're what we're doing here with the whole struggle of duty versus emotion. Um, she's kind of playing out the same thing that Spock is playing out. Um, I, I really there's so much here that I like, and maybe we are coming off of that unfortunate previous episode. Uh, but I feel like this is a really strong episode of Star Trek, or at least it's a very strong piece of science fiction, whether or not you hold it up to the highest levels of Star Trek. That may be another question, but I just feel like it's really strong and I really enjoy the performances here. Yeah, it's not. I mean, what's weird is it's not so strong that you say, oh, this is, you know, this is City on the Edge of Forever. And it's not so goofy that you say, oh, it's Spock's brain. Um, It's a good episode, though. It it's almost I don't know if this is going to make sense. It's almost like a later Marx Brothers movie in a way. <laughs> okay, where are you going with this? Well, not a lot is expected of any of the characters that we know and love in this episode. Hmm. I mean, Kirk is fairly cardboard. I mean, like you yeah. you joked about like, "Oh, what could I do to distract a woman?" Hmm, let me think. I mean, Kirk is called upon to be Kirk. Yeah. In this episode, Spock with the exception of, "Oh, we got smiling Spock again." So you know everything's not going to go smoothly. Yeah, but right. I mean, it is fun that Nimoy gets to play something else. But the Spock part of Spock is really not called upon to. Nobody is actually called upon to grow as far as our characters, and you yeah. know that's fine because I mean, if they spend an episode growing, they're not going to be any more grown the following week, so that's okay. <laughs> no, the later Marx Brothers thing is so the Marx Brothers movies initially were awesome, right? And yeah. then they sort of got divided up into uh, the awesome parts, which were the Marx Brothers, and then the love story, which you know was the part that I really don't care about in the later Marx Brothers movies. The growth in this episode comes with Miranda. And what's interesting is that's actually okay. I mean, she is not a character we've ever seen before. We are never going to see her again. And yet we actually see, we actually see change in her. We see growth in her. And then with everybody else, we can just say, wow, stop talking. (laughs) You know, I mean, quit, quit being a sexist, you know, jerk or, or quit saying he's ugly. Because, you know, it's it's not necessarily ugly. It's just something that's going on with you around right. this guy. Right. It's a lot of fun, and yet it's not it's not the strongest Spock episode. It's not the strongest Kirk episode. It's not the strongest McCoy episode. Sulu just sits there. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> and, and yet it's, yeah, it's actually, it's it's a really good episode. Although, again, it may be a really good episode after a really, really bad one. <laughs> right. Were you able to pick up any messages from uh, from this episode? Well, I mean, I like the whole uh, Miranda's whole thing about, you know, why are you saying that he's too ugly to bear? Maybe he's too beautiful to bear. I mean, the idea, I, I am a fan of the idea of basically taking a second look at something rather than just deciding about it. Yeah. Um, the reference, again, I, I still have always had a hard time with Itik being a Vulcan thing, but I do like the introduction of the Itik idea. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are those messages per se? I don't know, but I mean, they were neat things to take away. Again, too, I was just so jazzed by her dress. <laughs> I mean, I love the fact that they, that they gave us not only a good piece of hard science fiction, but a good piece of hard science fiction that made sense to, or that could make sense to somebody, you know, sitting in the late 1960s. We understand sure. sensors. We understand sensor arrays. We understand radar at that point. Right. You know, it's not like a, a transporter. I mean, right. still to me today, you say, will we ever have a, have a transporter? I'm like, well, we have a lot of other stuff from Star Trek, but maybe. But I'm never get, I don't get it. I don't get the ideas behind it, right? But right. I can get the idea behind her, uh, get the idea behind her dress. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that part of it I actually love. But so I guess the message is wearable computers, kids. <laughs> I don't it's know. Rage. Catch them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I, I think that um, there was something about Miranda's, uh, like I said, her her reaction to her position. Uh, something about being realistic about our shortcomings. She, she's mm. bad at working with others, you know? Yeah. Uh, but there's something here about how we have to accept the help of others. We have to work collaboratively. And that's where Itik comes in. That, that's why I think that regardless of the uh, controversial nature of squeezing Itik into this episode, it actually works really nicely. And uh, they they describe it again for you at the end of the episode that it's not just the idea that multiple things exist and are tolerated together, but it's only by combining disparate ideas that we're able to create meaning. We're able to create something new and better than what we had before. And that was a lesson that was clearly lost on Miranda. And it, and it took going through the hell of that episode to finally get there. Um, but I, you know, I, I think those those are valuable messages within this episode. But those are valuable concepts that kind of spread throughout Star Trek. So maybe that's one of the other reasons that I would hold this episode in high regard. You know, I guess if anybody had a complaint about this episode, John, uh, the only thing it might be is, um, I mean, the one guy, you know, well, Spock uh, did get hit with the phaser, but really not a whole lot of gunplay in this episode. No, no, there really isn't. Uh, so if you like your hardware in the form of handheld weapons, boy, howdy, wait until next week. It's Spectre of the Gun. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Having gazed upon the Midusen, do you suppose Spock could describe to me what it looks like? Then, could he describe to me what Marcellus Wallace looks like? And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.